episode 416, The Golden Age of Bodybuilding and Beating Arnold, with three times Mr. Olympia, Frank Zane. The Awaken Your Alpha podcast. Hi, I'm Adam Lewis Walker, founder of Awaken Your Alpha, the number one personal leadership network that is also a best-selling book, Awaken Your Alpha, Tows and Tactics to Thrive, and also a TEDx talk, Awaken Your Alpha, How to Rise Up. You can see a theme here, but please do check these out. If you like the talk, if you like the podcast, you will love the book. The book is the best of the best, and it's available on Amazon. This podcast is brought to you by The Talk Accelerator, helping thought leaders increase influence, income, and impact by achieving their talk. If you'd like to find out more about how you can get onto the red spot, please do head over to talkaccelerator.com. That's talkaccelerator.com. How to secure and smash your own TEDx talk. Get to the podcast. Hi, guys. Just wanted to officially introduce this uh, big episode, big interview for me and for the show. So I wanted to give you a little bit of background on this one. Frank Zane is 78 years old, so I'm really happy to get this interview. I'm sure you know from the intro and from if you followed any of my stuff, I'm a huge Arnold Schwarzenegger fan. And that I'm a fan of that whole era of bodybuilding, the golden era, where you had people like Frank Zane, Arnold, Franco Colombo. These, I mean, my knowledge of bodybuilding is not deep, but around that era is when I was really into it. And ultimately discovered bodybuilding through the Arnold link of being a, a big fan of his and going through that as a, as a young guy. Now, I was super excited to the opportunity to interview Frank. The fact that he's a former teacher and sort of did this on the side while he was a teacher competing in this. My, I see similarities in my career as a pole vault doing this. And it's my opinion, face-to-face interviews, whether in person or, you know, looking at someone in the eye over Zoom as I do, 99% of my interviews the reason for that, the video is not the important thing for me, but it is the actual, the, the fact of the nuances and the looking someone in the eye and they can see when you're about to speak and vice versa. When they're finished, it's very obvious and you, it's easier to build a rapport because you're looking at the person you're speaking to. Well, this interview, Frank, from what I hear and from what I experienced, I couldn't get this onto video. This was a phone-in interview only, so we were not actually, he doesn't know what I look like. <laughs> I know what he looks like from the photos, as I'm sure he's very famous for that. And I'll give you the insight to this. So this took quite a while to set up, quite a lot of confusion in communication for whatever reason. And I'll just tell it like it is. So we did the interview, and as an interviewer, I enjoyed this interview. I appreciate what Frank's achieved. I think this is a good interview and it's a good podcast to listen to. It was tough work. <laughs> you see for yourself. I've never met him or, you know, I've never particularly listened to his interview before. So I went in with an open mind. So it is what it is. I thought, hey, that's what Frank is. That's what Frank is. Anyway, this was the situation. So I left feeling I was definitely underwhelmed afterwards. It was done. It's in the, it's in the, it's in the books. It is what it is. As so, you know, I don't know what I expected, but it wasn't quite what I expected. And then 20 minutes later, because it's all done on my phone, um, I look at my phone and I see um, Frank's face staring at me as if Frank's calling me on my phone. It's only 20 minutes after our interview. So I pick up and I'm like, you're right, Frank. I says, uh, and he says, can we do that again? And I said, uh, and in my gut, I'm thinking, oh, I feel like quit while I'm ahead. Like I'm, I'm happy with my performance. Hey, I could always do better. I know I could. Second time would probably be better for both. You know, especially for, for someone like Frank, if, if, he's, if he wants to do it again, I was obviously, I wanted to accommodate him. 
sure, we can do that. And I basically, it was like, I was thinking, why? And he said, yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd like to go again. I was a bit grumpy. And I almost, I almost had it there. I think it's some English. I almost had the word sorry. He didn't say sorry. He just said, I want to go again. I was grumpy today. I thought, okay, fair enough. I actually thought that, you know, she showed really good self-awareness. And I was actually, um, I'm saying my gut was, no, let's not go ahead again. But I also, you know, he, he doesn't have, he's taken time out of his day to, he obviously left it for a bit. Didn't, didn't feel right his end from, for whatever reason. And he's called me back up and he's going to wants to invest his time in speaking to me again. If it wasn't Frank, I wouldn't have done it. But I'm against my gut. I had some my plans the next day and he, you know, same time tomorrow type thing. Yeah, I can do that. I can move some things around. So this is, you know, less than 24 hours now. Same time, confirmed by email, exactly the same method we did today. I switched my day with my kids. I had some family things I was going to do the next day. And next day rolls around, sitting there exactly the same interview time. Frank is a no-show. That's frustrating, number one. Number two, I didn't chase at the interview time because... I've got the interview. I, I don't want to do the interview again. I, I've got the interview as you're about to hear and he hasn't turned up. It is what it is. So obviously I do email. I've been waiting for the interview. I've got other things that I'm moving on now. I hope you're okay. Let me know. And if you want to reschedule, eventually I get the one line response a few hours later after, you know, I've changed my plans for this and it just said this, I think word for word. No, let's just go with the original interview. And that's how we left it. So there, there we go. <laughs> this is a good podcast. This is Frank, an absolute legend in the bodybuilding world. In his own words, a little bit grumpy in this one. I don't think it's too bad, but hey, I don't know the guy personally. But obviously, I always edit my podcast episode to make the guests look as good as possible. That's really my focus when I'm doing an interview. But also, I want to give the realities. So it was a good, good test for my interviewing skills, but he wasn't rude by his standards. In his own words, he was a little bit grumpy. But <laughs> there we go. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Let me know what you think. Frank, thank you for your time. Always grateful to speak from any of that tight little crew from the golden age of bodybuilding. Here we go. Get to the podcast. Right, this one. This is the interview that I've been looking forward to for a long time. The sort of interviews I had in mind when I started the podcast over six years ago. We've got Frank Zane on the line. He's an American former professional bodybuilder and author. He's a three-time Mr. Olympia, and his physique is considered one of the greatest in the history of bodybuilding due to its symmetry and proportion. The bio could go on for a long time. I'll have that all in the show notes. So I'm excited to dive straight in. Frank, are you ready to awaken your alpha today? Uh, yes, I am. <laughs> awesome. That was quite a brief introduction from me. Um, is there anything you'd like to add or highlight? Uh, I don't What do you mean? What, what do you mean? So, I, is there anything from your introduction I kind of missed out that you're like, hey, you missed this? You know, I, obviously, I mentioned three-time Mr. Olympia is, is a huge accomplishment. Is there anything more up to date or are you, are you happy with that introduction? Is there anything I missed? That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> I know kind of personally sort of the, the story, the stuff, things you can read online, but I just want you to touch briefly on your origins for the audience. Where are you originally from? Where are you speaking to us from today? And kind of a little bit about the journey of how you got from A to B. Well, I live in La Mesa, California right now and been here for 22 years. And originally from uh, Northeastern Pennsylvania, started out, went to college there, uh, taught school in Pennsylvania, uh, New Jersey, three years in Florida and then eight years in Los Angeles okay. and uh, retired from that in 1977 and won the Olympia three years in a row and uh, moved 
we were actually in Santa Monica at the time, uh, moved to Palm Springs, and then uh, 1998, we moved here. So I'm curious to know, with bodybuilding, was, it, was that something you, from a young age, you was always aspiring to, or did it, did it come later in life? Or when, when did you really feel like, kind of that awakening moment, that bodybuilding is not just something you're, you're loving at and you're very good at, something that could actually be a career? I started when I was, I think, 14 or 15 years old when I found out about it. And they bought a set of dumbbells and began training in my basement. Yeah. And uh, trained at the local YMCA as well. And then at, at uh, one bodybuilder that I knew, he had a nice home gym, uh, trained there as well. And then uh, began teaching in first year in Pennsylvania, set up a weight training club there. And then New Jersey, same thing in that situation. Yeah. And then when I moved to uh, moved to Los Angeles, uh, trained at Gold's Gym. Awesome. At what stage did you feel like it went from obviously a very keen hobby passion to actually you are not the average bodybuilder, even at a young age, and you obviously you've one of the greatest bodybuilders in history in terms of your physique. When did you realize that you were not the average person working out, and this is something you could really run with and make a career out of? Well, I started competing when I was 18. Okay. And, uh, you know, I, I, I actually was with the AAU. I didn't do too well with them because it was a lot of it was based on the sport of Olympic weightlifting, which I didn't do. Mm-hmm. And then I uh, uh, started going in IFBB contests in the early, what was I, about 1964, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, began winning, winning some contests there. And then, won uh, IFBB Mr. America in 1968, and then a week later, won uh, IFBB Mr. Universe in Miami. Ah, is, and, that, uh, is that one of the famous, is that when you beat Arnold Schwarzenegger? That was the time. <laughs> awesome. Um, what did you want to be growing up? I'm curious to that, and like, when that transition to obviously going professional as a bodybuilder. I wanted to be a scientist, and then I got involved in teaching because when I was in high school, I... I thought that I could do a much better job teaching than the teachers I had there. <laughs> and so when I went to college, I was a chemistry major. And then after two years, I uh, switched in into secondary education and then began teaching school after that, which was a perfect job for a bodybuilder because you had the summers off, but it yeah. just didn't pay very much. Well, Frank, I, I, I felt like I relate to you, but I was a teacher as well. For, I was a PE teacher for 10 years and because I was a, a pole vaulter as well for exactly the same reason. I had the summers off, which is when my season really picked up. And yeah, same thing. It didn't pay very well, but it was a good for a lifestyle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Awesome. It was a good job until you could find something that uh, you could do and make, and make a living at. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a good job. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like obviously a nice smooth in some ways from the surface rise to fame and, and sort of how well it went. But when was a real challenging period of your life or time in life on this, this journey and when you had to really kind of fight to, to push through and to, to sort of reach the heights you ended up reaching? Nothing pops up to mind. I mean, it was all a challenge. Yeah. And uh, I realized that uh, it was going to take a lot of work and I just applied myself over time made my uh, living situation, earning situation better. Mm-hmm. And eventually it happened. I just stuck with it. Yeah. 
I suppose on, on that note, what do you feel was uh, the kind of change or was it just the sort of accumulation of this, this hard training in terms of when you were placing in, in and around second, third, fourth places and then when you started winning events and really being the top in the game? What do you think was that small change to get to that, the top of the tree? There wasn't any small. I just kept training and yeah. uh, my situation improved with uh, living conditions and earning conditions. And in 1977, I uh, basically took sabbatical leave from teaching yep. with no intention of going yep. back and won, won the Mr. Olympia the first time. And then wow. I already had mail order courses uh, going. And so we expanded into, I got, we got publishing deals with Simon and Schuster and came out with our first two books. And uh, it just grew from there. Brilliant. We've been doing pretty much the same thing ever since. What would you say is one of the peaks of your career? And it might not be the most obvious one that you'd see in kind of the bios as some of the titles you've, you've won. But uh, can you think of a period where you were personally very satisfied and it felt like, hey, this is, I've come a long way and this is a, a real, this is a decent moment when you look back at it for you? It was probably winning the Olympia the third time in 1979. Yeah. My, uh, the high peak of my career. And again, that was the period as well, because I know Franco Colombo kind of was before, came sort of before you, and he was in that era as well. And then Arnold, was he nipping at your heels at that point? Arnold won up until 1975. Yep. And then Colombo won in 76, and that was a close contest with me. And then uh, neither one of them entered after that, ah. except Arnold in 1980. Ah, yeah. Cause I think I had his video or total rebuild, rebuild when he came back. And I have to say, my this is the era when I sort of got very interested and I came, see, so I was probably about 13, 14. I came the route into bodybuilding as a, an athlete, but also watching Arnold's movies. And then I got into, and then obviously became aware of yourself, Franco Colombo, and sort of a lot of the, the big names in that era. And I wondered, what was it like being involved in that such a sort of a famous era of bodybuilding then? And really when it moved more into the, the mainstream, and I know things like pumping iron were sort of behind that as well, but did you notice a change? You know, people like Arnold always talk about when he started, you were seen as, you know, very much outliers and quite weird people in terms of having that much of a physique. Can you talk to us about, did you notice a transition from like your whole career and, uh, you know, how, how you feel it's changed in the, in the world and in the States? Nothing was different for me. I mean, I just trained and applied myself in the same way. Yeah. And the fact that the popularity grew just means that I got more exposure and uh, made a better look. But th there was nothing that different about it. Nothing radical as far as the change went. Yeah. It was the same old stuff. Okay. And I suppose then from your, your whole career and obviously the position you're in now, knowing what you know now, is there anything major you'd do different as a competitor then? Or what, what sort of advice would you maybe give to a young bodybuilder coming into the sport now? And I know obviously things are, are different and change, but is there any kind of key piece of advice that you wish someone has kind of sat you down when you were sort of around 18, 20 and kind of giving you a, a little bit of advice? Best advice I can get is keep bodybuilding as your hobby and don't try to make a living at it. That way you'll still have the enjoyment of it. And find another way to to to, uh, to further your, your growth, other than just being a bodybuilding. Yeah, but it, it's not that easy. Not that many people have managed to really make it in bodybuilding, except top winners. And so you know, there's only so much room for that. Yeah, I'd say get get another gig going besides bodybuilding. 
Well, that's a, I mean, a key point listening to your story, you, you pretty much didn't go f as a full-time bodybuilder pretty much the year you won Mr. Olympia from the sounds of it. That's right. Yeah. So, right. <laughs> so yes, keep it on the side, be a, you know, part-time until you win Mr. Olympia. That's, I think that's good advice. Good advice. Uh, I wouldn't put it that way, but basically, uh, you know, I, I was a professional bodybuilder the whole time I was teaching. Yes. And I was yeah. able to do it because I was a mathematics teacher and uh, I was able to take a lot of time off, mm. but it's not like uh, the school appreciated it that much. They, they, after a while, they started calling me the guest celebrity <laughs> I, because I was often not, well, I took, I took the full amount of time off. We'd give 10 sick days in 20 half days. So I, I missed 30 days of a year. Uh, yeah, and so, you know, yeah. from I mean, it was perfectly legal what I was doing and you know, I found it for, but uh, I think there's a lot of jealousy going around because I was involved in something that was uh, more profitable than what a lot of teachers were stuck with. Mm. Now, I know you sort of, you mentioned you, you know, you trained consistently and you had sort of a way to support yourself as, as you were training consistently as a, you know, as a bodybuilder. Is there anything apart from obviously being consistent, is there anything in terms of, the mindset that you noticed between say yourself and that group that really kind of excelled and others at the time who really were on the set, they were keen and they, they couldn't break into that. I know. What are your thoughts on genetics playing a role in this mindset? What is the special source that someone like yourself brings to it to, to be able to come to the, to get to that level? Well, I approached everything scientifically and I realized that if you're going to, uh, make it big, you have to have feedback on what you look like. And so I had a lot of photographs taken okay. because it's the only way you truly see yourself the way other people do is in a photograph. And I just focused on that. And mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, led me to, plus the photographs are what makes you popular, you know, showing that's the way most people ever see you is in photographs. Yeah. So I focused on that. And as you was uh, coming up as a, a younger man and bodybuilder, who helped awaken your alpha in terms of even in the bodybuilding world, who did you sort of aspire to? Were there any specific physiques or people that you either knew or, you know, you were aware of from afar that you were thought, actually, that's somewhere I want to go or that is kind of the physique that I'm trying to shooting for? Well, I had two idols. My main idol was Steve Reeves from an early age. I saw the Hercules movies when I was a senior in high school. Yeah. And I really liked that kind of development. But then when I competed, especially it was in 1965 uh, in New York, I got to talk to Larry Scott, who won his first Olympia backstage. And I was really amazed at the way he looked up mm. close. And I talked to him about uh, teaching in California. He said, yeah, there's a lot of jobs. You should look into that. And I did. You know, eventually I made it to California. And uh, from there, my there that basically was where you could be, you know, uh, a big fish in a big pond. <laughs> because up until that point, I was a big fish in smaller ponds. Yeah. And so when I got to California, the, everything was there. The environment, uh, you know, it was, it was the hub of bodybuilding, Gold's Gym in Venice, California. I was there, Arnold was there, and, you know, everybody was basically coming there, especially in the summers. Yeah. How was the camaraderie of that? Because like you say, you're all, you're all really there. You're all training in the same sort of environment, same gym, uh, very aware of each other. I, I'm assuming friends to different levels with different, uh, different bodybuilders. But obviously, it's very competitive. How was that sides of thing? And, and 
was there, I mean, Arnold always talks about mind games and things, but how was that training group? Uh, and was it a group or was it very individual who just happened to be in the same gym? Could you talk to us about the dynamics of, you know, that kind of era and that group? Well, you know, we all trained at the same gym. Basically, it was myself, Arnold, Colombo, Dave Draper, and uh, we were all friends. You know, socially, we hung out together. And uh, we didn't really compete against each other, you know, until way down the line. Yeah. But uh, I remember in 1970, Mr. Uh, Universe in London, I was competing in that for the amateur, Arnold for the professional. And uh, he was giving me feedback of, of the poses. He thought that my vacuum pose was my best pose. Is that the one with your arms over yeah. your head, pulling your stomach in? That's right. Yeah. He said you should do that last. So I did because it was turned out to be my best pose. And that's important to do your best for last because that's what people remember the most. It's interesting you pulled that out because uh, obviously just in preparation of the interview, having a look at a few of the, the photos and things, and I saw that specific picture you were just talking about or the, at least that pose. And yeah, wow. Obviously, it's all impressive, but that one definitely uh, is very striking and st definitely stands out. As you went into, I suppose, later in your career and you're thinking of life beyond bodybuilding, how was your thoughts about that? Was it, obviously, you're, you're a teacher, you're a chemist, and obviously seemed very smart. Were you worried about life after bodybuilding? It's a, a lifestyle for you as well in terms of what to do after bodybuilding. And was there any, um, any struggles of when it's time to give up? Because I know, obviously, people can stay in really good shape into, you know, into later life as well. So was it obvious when it was time to retire from professional bodybuilding or was that a struggle? It was never a struggle. I retired in, what was it, 1983. And in the meantime, I had opened up a training facility in Palm Springs, we called Zane Haven, where <laughs> people stayed and, uh, and basically, you know, learned how to train. Yeah, And we carry that through. I still do that called Zane Experience now, my facility here in San Diego. So I was trained as a teacher, and I'm basically still teaching. Yeah. And I have I've, a lot of material that I've published, education material on bodybuilding. My main publication being Zane Bodybuilding Manual, which is 436-page volume with everything I know about bodybuilding in there. And I have some, a new one just come out called Get Started for somebody who can start out and not have much equipment. Yeah. And uh, you know, that's, that's what I do is I, I basically, before that I published for 18 years, I published every three months uh, a publication called a bodybuilding magazine called uh, Building the Body. And, uh, you know, right now we have one. I, basically, instead of every, every three months, now it comes out every year. And it's basically based on past editions called Muscle Past Midlife. So okay. I, I continue yeah. to make my living through bodybuilding, through publications, and also training people at my facility here. Yeah, awesome. And I suppose around that time when you sort of stepping away from the professional bodybuilding and some of your, obviously, your peers, people like Arnold and Lou Faringo as well, going into the movies, and you mentioned Steve Reeves, was there ever any kind of pull from you uh, towards that sort of career? Or did you ever look into that and think, because obviously you got the Hulk and then you got the Terminator who were going to your friends. Was there any ever thoughts of that or did you ever dip your toe in that water? I never wanted to waste my time chasing after that because, you know, it's, it's very elusive. Yeah. And so I, would, I, I always thought I'd rather have something steady and something I enjoy doing and continue to do rather than have to, uh, you know, continually hope to get some kind of publicity for 
making a movie or a film. I mean, that stuff came along anyway. I mean, I did some commercials yeah. and, uh, you know, some things along that line. And now with social media, there's plenty of opportunity to publicize yourself on that. Okay. And I saw as well, you were inducted into the Hall of Fame in uh, 1994. You got the Arnold Schwarzenegger Lifetime Achievement Award, uh, 2003 Arnold Classic. What is it like to, do you go back to many bodybuilding events now? Or are you in, kind of involved in the professional scene at all? Or do you, do you keep in touch with any of your old sort of friends from that world? Or are you kind of doing your own thing more now? I'm doing my own thing. I really don't go to events. Uh, you know, I did years ago, but now I'd rather, um, you know, I'll be 78 over the weekend. And so wow. I'm really not interested yeah. in traveling <laughs> that much. I'd rather, yeah. uh, you know, hang out in my own environment and have things exactly the way I want them. You mentioned about a new book for those who are starting out. What do you think are some key pieces of advice from that book in terms of those who are starting out and they're, you know, they're listening to this interview and that they've seen photos and, and they want to start a bit of bodybuilding on the side to their actual like job and their career. And what is, do you feel are some fundamental symmetry and sort of such an aesthetic look? Well, get a good course to follow. Now the get started book is, is very good from the standpoint of, very little equipment is required. I mean, mm -hmm. it's a lot of uh, a lot of stretching and ex some exercises with rubber cables, uh, some light dumbbells in places. But I have another book called 91 Day Wonder Body, which tells you exactly what to do for every day for three months. That's a really good book. You could do it if you have a, a you know modest home gym or in a health studio, and uh, you write everything down. And it's really a good way to uh, there's eight go through 18 different routines that I've written about and uh, it's, it's a very good way to train and uh, you learned a lot about how to train in doing it. Brilliant. And we'll stick some of them links in the show notes. So that no, it sounds like a great resource. And I know I mentioned earlier about sort of a time when it was quite challenging and I, it's got it in your information. So I just wondered how accurate this was, it, uh, whether they've hyped it up for one of your Mr. Olympia competitions. It says you had a near fatal accident and lost sort of seven kilograms or 15 pounds of muscle mass was, was, is that accurate or? I don't think the numbers are that accurate. I mean, yeah. I, it did happen in 1980, and I did lose some muscle mass, but I was still in very good shape even yeah. after all that happened. But I think looking back, I think probably the best thing would have been to not not compete that year, but compete the following year. But you know, as the saying goes, we're genius in hindsight. Yeah. And so uh, that was a very trying time. Uh, yeah. You know, it, it basically was a, a very serious accident, but I recovered and. Uh, I could have done much better if I would have had more time and then much better if that didn't happen. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it was a learning experience and uh, I lived through it. Yeah. And it, I mean, it mentions in some of your information, you're only one of three men to have beaten Schwarzenegger. I mean, does that register on you as an achievement? Cause I know he was just, he was one of your competitors and then obviously he became famous kind of toward, because of his career in show business. Does that register as something that, is significant to you or is it more that other people have kind of hyped that up um, later down the line? I don't care at all about it. I mean, he's had a great career and I'm happy for him, but I've also done what I wanted to do too. Yeah. So there's, there's no envy there at all. And we're just going to kind of start to wrap this up with the alpha round. And I'd like to start that off with, is there a particular quote that, you know, if, if you, if you're a fan of quotes or just one that really sums up your approach to life, business, bodybuilding, the whole thing. Well, there's two. One of them is, uh, 
Our lives are shaped by our mind. We become what we think. Mm. Okay? And my other quote is, everything works if you let it. And the source of those quotes, the first one is from the Buddha. And the second one is from the singer Meatloaf. Okay. Everything works if you let it. I like it. And we've mentioned a few books, a few of your books, and I'll put them in the show notes as well. But outside of your own books, was there ever a particular impactful book for you? And it might have nothing to do with bodybuilding, but it, you just read it at the right time in your life and it's really kind of what you needed to, to read and it really had an impact for you. Well, there are a number of them. Actually, uh, one of my top books is uh, called uh, In Search of the Miraculous by P.D. Ospensky. Okay. That's a, one of my favorites. Yeah. What, what's the kind of concept? Uh, then, what, what's that one about? Just a sort of a brief kind of summary or? Oh, it's a spiritual book about, uh, you know, how uh, modern man is, is actually a, a stimulus response robot that really has no kind of consciousness uh, apart than just mere sub survival. Uh, it's very interesting. Uh, it's about the life of George Gurdjieff. If you've yeah. ever heard about any of that, it's, it's pretty interesting. The other, other books are the books of uh, Carlos Castaneda, uh, Tales of Power, primarily. Oh, uh, you know. It's very well written. Yeah. I like that book. Some great recommendations. I'm interested in books about Buddhism, Buddhism primarily because they get to the essence of things. It's about the mind, yeah. how the, your mind shapes everything. And so, uh, you know, I, I, I do a bit of reading and meditating every day. Awesome. Well, I was going to, I was going to ask about habits and I thought training would be in there. And uh, so meditation, you mentioned um, in your latest book about, you know, not needing much equipment. If it came to a resource and sort of you, you've got your own environment now, what do you feel is a, a fundamental piece of useful equipment? You know, you probably can get by with very little equipment. What do you think is a really key piece of equipment in terms of maintaining health or useful to have in a, in a gym setting? I'd say dumbbells. Mm. Uh, adjustable dumbbells, a bench, and maybe a lap machine are the key things. And then something you can uh, do leg work with, like my leg blaster, for example. Uh, so it would sort of round it out. So if you had dumbbells, an adjustable flat to incline bench, lap machine, uh, lower pulley, and a leg blaster, pretty much do it all. And we've actually, we've actually got a couple of questions from the listeners, because I mentioned, obviously, I was speaking to you, and we had a couple of questions. And I, I'll just hit you with a few little ones. One of the questions from a listener was wanted to know your views or if you had any views on the Instagram famous athlete or coach. You know, there's a lot of people on Instagram who are given advice, some qualified, some not so much. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Do you even have an opinion? I have no opinion. I really don't know of any or follow any. And yeah. they're, they're welcome to, to do or say whatever they want. And if they gain a follow, I just hope that they're giving useful advice based on their success. Yeah. Oh, well, we're on a similar vein now. Yeah, I don't really know if any, you know, that's kind of my approach to it. But a lady asked about the use of steroids in sport. What, what are your thoughts on that? And obviously to a, a bodybuilding building sense, and then you have natural bodybuilding and then obviously the, the other side of bodybuilding and compared to other sports. I mean, what are your thoughts around that? And, and has that changed much from when you was obviously a competitor in the, you know, years ago to now from this position? I think it should be regulated. I think that it could, you could have like two camps. One is 
completely natural, mm-hmm. no use of, of any kind of growth enhancing drugs aside from maybe, you know, uh, food supplements, amino acids, et cetera. And for those who decide to go the steroid route, they have to be under doctor's care and they get tested, uh, you know, random testing. And they have to keep their testosterone levels within a certain range or else they're disqualified. Mm. And I think that if they're going to continue with this, they need to do something like that. Yeah. Because well, I, right now it's just, it's out of control. I mean, you don't get these, you don't get people, you don't get bodies that are, you know, five foot seven and 275 pounds naturally. Mm. You know, all these big freaky looking guys you see are all drug enhanced. Mm. I'll deny yeah. all that, but I mean, come on, how can you deny that? Well, exactly. But and this is, is. A, yeah, something for me as well, which, you know, it, it, it did frustrate me because I was, so I was what, 17, 18 in 1998. And so I kind of grew up and I, I really appreciated, you know, the physiques of your era. And I, I thought they were, they looked really good. And I liked that. And then by the time I was obviously, the, the, the reality of the, the standard of bodybuilding when I was sort of 17, 18, so 1998, if I looked at who was at the top at that time, their bodies and their physiques is not something that I aspired to. And it only made me sort of turn my back from really going into the bodybuilding and more went down the, the track and field route because I, I, I didn't want, I wasn't a fan of, you know, like you said, the, what it is now in terms of, I feel like they've gone too far and it's just an opinion, but also I was quite aware that that cannot be healthy at all. No, it's not. The thing about it is that uh, the the anabolics, uh, uh, you know, basically muscle piles on very quickly. Mm. uh, And really, it's sort of a random thing because uh, you don't have any any way of planning it so much because it all it all comes on so fast. And basically, it lumps into the big areas of your body, Mm. not on the smaller areas like your calves or, you know, uh, your forearms, for example. Uh, and, and so it, what steroids do, it's possible to do without them. It just takes longer yeah. and it requires more patience. And so it all breaks down to two schools. One is school is get big fast. That's the steroid school. And I think most younger bodybuilders are attracted to that, especially the ones that want to compete. They feel like this is the leveling thing that levels the field. And the other one is, uh, you know, last a long time. You know, school of longevity, and as you get older, uh, th- that becomes much more important. And you know, that sort of happens around midlife, uh, yeah, forties. So you know, there, there's no telling people what to do on this. People are going to do what they're going to do, and uh, you know, I don't try to tell people what to do. They have to find out for themselves. I just hope that in doing so, they don't kill themselves yeah. or destroy their lives. Definitely. Um, Frank, I really enjoyed speaking. If other people want to continue the conversation with you and, and connect and sort of find your books, what's the best way to, to follow up with you? Uh, you could email me at uh, zane0001 at aol.com. That's three zeros in a number one. Mm-hmm. That's the most direct way. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. And, but um, obviously, they put one search of Frank Zane online and then you can come up. Do you have a specific website you'd like to, them to land to? I know you've got... Um, you've got yeah, frankzane.com. Yeah, frankzane.com. <laughs> so all I'm my goods and services are listed there, so you can see it all. Brilliant. And in wrapping up, what was the one question coming into this? You might not have had any sort of um, expectations, but you felt like I missed a trick. I missed a question. You, you thought I was going to ask it, and I didn't. Is there anything that springs to mind? 
You sound like Rachel Maddow on uh, MSNBC show. She always asks the guest, is there anything that I should have said that I didn't? Blah, blah, blah. No, you said what you said. I really didn't have any expectations of what it was. And you, you seem to cover all the important points. So congratulations. Oh, nice thanks, thanks, Frank. No, that is, that is my get out of jail free. And uh, as I say, I just put that. So if there's anything you wanted to get off, off your chest, Frank. But no, I, I really appreciate your time. And it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you today. Oh, my pleasure. Anytime. The Awaken Your Alpha podcast. Live limitless. This podcast is brought to you by the Talk Accelerator, helping thought leaders increase influence, income, and impact by achieving their talk. If you'd like to find out more about how you can get onto the red spot, please do head over to talkaccelerator.com. That's talkaccelerator.com. The Talk Accelerator program, how to secure and smash your own TEDx talk. You can also book in your complimentary idea clarity call there to talk through any potential ideas you may have. What is your idea worth sharing? I'd love to hear about it and I'd love to speak with you very soon.